on this episode of Isolated But Not Alone, we're going to be continuing our discussion on the family from the Christian perspective. On the past two episodes, we've been developing a theology of the family, and we're going to continue to do so in this episode. This is the foundation of how we're going to build the rest of our understanding of the family from this perspective. If you've been tuning into these episodes, you know that this discussion on the family came from a series on spiritual grooming and spiritual abuse. And on that series, I went into depth on how spiritual grooming and spiritual abuse are taking place currently in evangelical Christianity. Some of the topics I addressed in that series involved a family that had been the victim of years of spiritual grooming that eventually culminated in spiritual abuse and grievous harm towards that family that will probably have generational effects, generational trauma, and how that situation in turn affected the church, church leadership, members of the church a missionary agency, and people at large. And what I discussed a lot on that podcast was the understanding of this mission agency supporting a missionary that has done this thing in the community to this family. And there seems to be no accountability. And something that was interesting that I did not know at the time was that another mission agency, of which I'm not going to name, had an incident involving a man whose father was kind of prominent in developing an association for this church group. And this individual man was a missionary doctor who unfortunately was abusing children. And what's really sad about the story is that the agency had some type of awareness of the situation and was doing something to minimize it, maybe even to cover it up. It wasn't until adult victims came out, and these were not just victims of the people in the missionary field, meaning that the indigenous population that the missionaries went out to serve, but also other missionary kids and children from missionaries were abused. And so this had a profound impact on this agency and the church at large and believers and the people groups that they served, and is a story, is a warning to other agencies. And for this agency's credit, they have done a lot of work to address the issues that occur. For example, if you were to go to their website, they have an entire section about that event, about what they are doing to ensure that something like that never happens again and ensure the safety of children. They have an entire statement that describes what happened, describes their fault, describes what they did to try to reconcile if accepted, if wanted, with the parties that were injured. And so agencies can experience this. And no agency, whether you're a Christian agency or not, is above what can happen when an individual takes advantage and abuses children. But where the problem comes in is when an agency doesn't have checks and balances to protect people. Meaning that when this does occur... It is allowed because of the way the system is designed to allow it to keep occurring and protect the person who clearly needs help, but instead protect that harm, protect it, keep it alive, give it longevity, give that person a place to hide. And so this discussion on the family all came about because one of the things that can really harm us is when we don't have a lot of understanding about the family system. How do I know when my boundaries are rigid? How do I know if they're too permeable? 
How do I know stuff that shouldn't be getting in is getting in? And how do I know that stuff that should be getting in is being blocked? And so education on the family is extremely important. So today we've got lots to talk about as we continue to develop this theology of the family. Keeping in mind that this came about from this event that occurred to this family and is still occurring to them that will have consequences for generations. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines, and you're listening to Isolated But Not Alone, a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Raines is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. Welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. We've been discussing the family, and I really enjoy discussing the family. I remember when I was doing my internship at Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge, and if you're not aware of what that is, Adult and Teen Challenge is a national religious organization that provides chemical dependency treatment to teens and adults, men and women. And when I was doing my internship there in co-occurring disorders, and that simply means that there are multiple mental health disorders at one time, one of them most likely being chemical dependency, I found myself enjoying that work. I enjoyed working with people who struggle with addiction as I myself struggle with addiction and have gained insight and tools to continue my journey of recovery. And it always brought joy to me to be able to give back what others had given to me. But that work is often very individual, though sometimes we participate in group psychotherapy. I really enjoyed the times when I was able to go to my second internship site, which was a small family practice. And oftentimes when I compared the two, I often was energized when I went to work with families versus depleted when I worked with the individual. And I think that's because even in my early childhood, I always envisioned and fantasized about family, about family connectedness. I grew up in a home where there was mental illness, there was abuse, there was drugs and alcohol, and oftentimes there were secrets and there was hiding and there was disconnection. And so as a young person who was more sensitive, I always felt that I really reached out for that connection. Right. And so when people were fantasizing at my age of being Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, I actually I don't know if anybody ever imagined being Scottie Pippen. I mean, he was pretty cool, but I don't necessarily know if that was the dream. But people were fantasizing about being these great athletic stars, about being, you know, MC Hammer. You know, all these great icons, Vanilla Ice. I was envisioning, I was fantasizing about a young person, about my family getting together, my family connecting, being love and safety. From hearing that story, you could probably imagine there was some trauma there where my fantasy life was not a normal fantasy life that you oftentimes hear about young people having about wanting to be a police officer or a great basketball star or somebody who's wealthy, though those fantasies oftentimes have a similar thread. My fantasy was about connecting about being accepted into a family, right? And having family cohesiveness versus secrets versus disconnection. I say all that to say I get excited when talking about the family. And I get passionate when I see the family being attacked in ways that are extremely harmful. 
because we often don't realize that things that happen in our family can have generational consequences, meaning that something can be passed along our family line. And there's lots of different types of individual therapies and family therapies that focus on that intergenerational trauma or intergenerational issues that can be passed down through the family line. So today, we're going to continue our development of family from the Christian perspective and theology of the family. I know on the very first podcast, I talked about how the school I went to did something kind of backwards. Some might even call it perverse. And I use the word perverse because perverse has this idea of I'm going to do it this way, even if it goes against what is considered acceptable or reasonable. And that was this method of diving into proof text while saying that proof texting was wrong and yet doing it themselves and saying that's the right way. What they would do is they get hyper-focused on specific passages about the family and then from that hyper-specific passage develop an entire theology of how you are supposed to interact with the family and define family dynamics, roles, rules, etc. And then if somebody came out with a more general approach inward to specific that was instantly seen as something that was wrong, evil, and you just did not do it that way. Or you were not a good person. You were not a good believer. There was something wrong with you. But oftentimes what I saw was this way of thinking about the family led to situations where people disconnected completely from their family, shamed them because they did not behave in a way that was acceptable to the other person's belief system. And there was no grace there was no forgiveness. There was no mercy. There was none of that. It's you are not like me. So therefore I'm done with you, but not because of me, but because God said so. Oftentimes I think in these extremely fundamental and isolated communities, God becomes a scapegoat for so many different things. It's not me. It's God. I'm not breaking up with you because there's things about you I don't like or I don't feel connect well with me. I'm breaking up with you because God wants me to. Or another personal favor of mine, I want to go have sex with somebody. You are my girlfriend, but you are not willing to do that because of your convictions. I can't look bad and say that to you because that would be horrible. So I'm going to tell you that God said that it's not our will to be together, which in my opinion feels much worse. And you might be wondering, James, why that example? That's a real example that I heard when I was a young person from an acquaintance of mine. But in that world, those type of things happen all the time. Scapegoating of God. Where God becomes the scapegoat for you to act in ways to protect your own image because that is one of the most important thing in those groups. And potentially in doing so cause harm to others. And there was complete disruption of family. Destruction of family. Emotional cutoff because of a belief system that came from a hyper-specific passage. And this went on for lots of different things, including the family, but also things outside of the family. And so later in life, as I started to hear that there's a different way, <laughs> there's other ways of looking at the family, it was very challenging for me because my theology of the family was based on hyper-specific passage, maybe five. But armed with that righteous fervor in those five passages, I could do a lot of damage. And I did. And it was hard for me to see that there were other reasonable ways of looking at the family. Because my view was so narrow, but my view in my mind was right. It was righteous. It was 100% from the Lord, 100% from the Bible, therefore 100% right. And anybody who disagreed was 100% wrong. And not only were they wrong, but they were evil and I needed to disconnect from them. 
even if it was my own family, especially if it was my own family. And that kind of thinking oftentimes led into very harmful behavior in the family where you would excommunicate a family member, for example, if they did a sin or something you saw as a sin that was different than the sin that you did. So you took this position of righteousness because you yourself did not do whatever they were doing. And then you got into these issues where like, oh, I'm going to point the finger at this sin. I'm going to point the finger at the sin of infidelity. If you cheat on your partner, you're a horrible, dirty, rotten person. But I'm a liar, but that's okay. Because it's okay to be a liar, right? Because that's what I do. So I got to put up mechanisms to address that, to minimize it, to deny it. But I can see clear as day that they're cheating on their partner. So therefore they're a horrible, dirty, rotten person. But I'm not because I don't cheat on my partner. I lie to them all the time, but I don't cheat on them. Do you see that twisted logic there? That problematic, harmful thinking? And it leads just to devastation in lots of different ways. So when we're called to be full of grace, when we're called to be people of love, we're the opposite. We're people who are devoid of grace. We're people who are devoid of love. We're clinging to performance. We're clinging to these proof texts. But here's the thing with proof texts that always gets me, is that in one passage of scripture, you can read this, and then you can go down to another passage of scripture and read the exact opposite. Right? And you're like, wait a minute, which one is it? I'm so confused here. Doesn't mean that's wrong. It just means that maybe you're thinking about it as wrong. That maybe there's more gray area. There's more paradoxes in our life. Life is more complex than a proof text. Moving on to our discussion of the theology of the family, this book saw the theology of family relationships having four dimensions. As we discussed previously, covenant, grace, empowerment, and intimacy. They saw a covenant as the core of relating. It's kind of the beginning part. It's the foundation which everything gets built off of. Family relationships will either be dynamic and maturing or stagnant and dying is kind of what the book says. And there's so much truth to that. And maybe you've experienced that in your own family where your family is maturing, it's growing, it's moving towards a goal, it's thriving, versus times where maybe you've experienced where things are just dead, they're stagnant, there's no growth, we're just doing the same things we've always done, nobody's really happy, everybody's kind of sad, everybody feels disconnected. The book brings up something interesting here. It says that we are all moving towards God or away from God. So we're in this constant flux of moving towards or away. And this movement is because of sin. So here are the characteristics that they talk about. They believe that the first logical point of any family relationship is a covenant, is a commitment, is that you are making a commitment. And the core of this commitment is unconditional love. And we oftentimes have difficulty seeing this with romantic partners, but this is usually easily seen with children. When you welcome that new baby into the world and you just have that eruption of unconditional love where you would do anything for that little baby. And unconditional love is the bedrock love in relationship. It creates a responsiveness and accessibility. Next is grace. And grace emerges from covenant. Mercy and forgiveness and aspects of grace are extending in relationship with others as a result of receiving love from God. So that's kind of how this book saw it as we receive love from God. We receive grace from God. God has given us a covenant. He has said, I will do these things. And because of that outflows through grace. And then because we have received that grace, it can pour out through us to others. The book talks about in an atmosphere of grace, family members have the freedom 
to empower one another. And that's the third, empowerment. Empowerment leads to the possibility of intimacy. Grace, empowerment, intimacy deepen as covenant is solidified. So covenant is the foundation which grace and empowerment and intimacy outpour. And then because of the outpouring of those things, it continues to build that foundation. Everything is increased. However, there's something important to discuss, and we're going to end here, is that there must be mutual involvement for growth to take place in any relationship. It is not uncommon to hear couples discuss that one person is wanting the relationship to work. They want to save the relationship, while as the other person is not committed to the relationship. The partner who is committed can do everything in their power to try to save that relationship, and it will not work. It will fail. Because in order to have growth, there has to be mutual involvement. And growth in relationships can be blocked. It can be hampered. When one person in the relationship is unable or unwilling to reciprocate those things. If they are unable to reciprocate covenant love, grace, empowerment, or intimacy. And what happens when that occurs is that relationships go into what we call duty or status quo. And people can live in status quo for a very long time where it is the duty to keep the relationship alive based on their commitments. But at that point, there is nothing else. And what flows out of that is law, possessive power, and distance, disconnection. So we're going to end there with some very important things to think about. When we're discussing the family, where do you fall in this spectrum. Are you a family that's committed to each other, that through that commitment provide grace, empowerment, and intimacy? We're going to go more into depth of what each one of those means. Or are you a family that because you're committed to each other, and that is the only thing that you are, out of that pours out law, rigid rules, power that's possessive, controlling power, selfish power, and distance where there's disconnection, there is no intimacy, there is no love. I want to preface before we end that oftentimes hearing these things and taking an introspective look at our families can create a lot of discouragement, maybe even despair. And know that there is help out there. There is help for the family. The family can be healed, but sometimes we have to take the first step and admit that something is wrong. Again, you might be isolated, but you're not alone. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family, and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health, and we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated, and maybe you are, but you're not alone.